welcome to episode 3 of the On Meaningful Work podcast. Uh, this is Rahul Sones and on this episode we have my good friend Nick Bond. Uh, Nick is one of my oldest friends. I've known Nick for a number of years now and Nick is one of the people who are instrumental in getting the disruptive business network up and running. Nick has had an incredible career as a firstly as a humanitarian engineer with Engineers Without Borders Australia. getting into his first startup failing at that being a very successful consultant with organizations such as thoughtworks and now starting his new company type human in this episode we get into nick's journey what motivates him and how he came to regard blockchain and web 3.0 so thank you for listening and enjoy our interview with nick burn Nick, thanks so much for doing this, for joining me. Pleasure. Um, I've known you for a while. I've known you about six years, um, and I think I've witnessed a lot of your entrepreneurial journey. And it, it's something I've always admired about you: how you were able to navigate that. Um, and this podcast is really about helping people in a career malaise or in a or looking. to find out you know what they were meant to do so maybe let's start with your genesis story like who is nick burn where did you come from okay yeah. uh i mean the, obviously there's different ways of answering that question but in the context of this conversation um mm-hmm. until recently i didn't think i fit, fit the classic entrepreneurial hero story if you mm-hmm. like uh but um turns out i think i do so um born into a single effectively single parent household so had i guess there was an element of self sufficiency that was required from an early age but mm. uh even without that in primary school one of the earliest memories i have was of getting involved in a small business thing and selling crap um but then more <laughs> tangibly um was a lemonade stand or <laughs> Oh, it, was, it wasn't an official program. I think <laughs> it's too old for those, unfortunately. Yeah. The <coughs> no, I mean the, the most notable one was I must have been eight, and so I started making friendship bands to sell them to raise money for the farmers who were in drought. So it was a big mm-hmm. farm farm aid program in Australia at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, yeah, so I got my mum and brother in the end on the assembly line making friendship bracelets and then sold them at primary school and raised a few hundred dollars to then give to the the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, early high school I then um ran like a small computer services company as like a 13 year old my mum would drop me in a tax office mm-hmm. or an accountant's office sorry and would I didn't know what the fuck what the hell I was doing but mm-hmm. uh managed to solve some of the MIB problems that I was having um and in the back half of high school uh, started building websites with a good friend and running LAN parties which Um I think still happen today but back then it was you'd log your computer into a big warehouse and play computer games with each other overnight and so we would take the lease on the the building organize mm-hmm. the the food and everything like that and give everyone a place to come hang out for the night. Mm-hmm. Um and then I guess my entrepreneurial um streak took a back uh took a step back um toward the end of high school when university and other things took priority so mm-hmm. um I what guess that's my st- genesis story coming back to your question. Yeah. Sure, so what did you study at university? 
Uh, I did engineering economics double, um, mm. but I didn't finish the economics. By the end of the four years of engineering, I was done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I guess I went to Adelaide Uni, and so there was always a big focus on graduating into a large sort of consulting firm, mm -hmm. um, but took more satisfaction from working in the smaller companies, really, um, without, yeah. I guess it just took a long time to admit that. Because yeah. um, you weren't really brought up in that environment to think that that was success, like success was entering a large organization. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I guess it wasn't until early 20s, I guess, that I started getting more comfortable with the idea that mm. that wasn't for me. Sure. Yeah. And just your decision to do engineering was, how did you come mm -hmm. to that? Was it, I mean, you mentioned you were organizing land parties and, you know, yeah. You were quite involved in technology early on, but uh, what made you choose in engineering? Uh, look, at the time, I wasn't even sure that I was going to get the year 12 results to be able to get into engineering, so that mm. came as a bit of a surprise. I think <laughs> prior to getting my year 12 results, my top um, preference was mm. um, a arts science double, um, and that's because I was lucky enough for year 12 to work, do my studies at the Australian Science and Math School. Mm -hmm and was mentored by a professor and so I was doing sort of some, some extra studies on the side. Um, and so coming out of year 12, I remember being quite fascinated with the sciences and um, this feeling that we needed to reconnect philosophy and science mm -hmm. to be able to like get the science to start um, challenging some rude assumptions in our thinking of what, like, what makes up the world. Mm -hmm. um, but then the results came out and yeah, coming from a single parent family was pretty focused on getting a job mm -hmm. and thought that civil engineering, well at the time civil engineering had a 100% graduation rate into work mm -hmm. and yeah, well, it was in the lead up to the Australian mining boom. Mm -hmm. um, so, decided so you did civil engineering? Somewhere. Civil and environmental, yeah. yeah, but with the thought that it was a skill that would be applicable in the developing world if I chose to go and work over there as much as it's applicable in mm -hmm. Australia. Yeah. Um, I think another thing I admire about you is your kind of social conscious. What formative experiences uh, developed that? It's a nature versus nurture <laughs> sort of question, right? Um, yeah. I think I was always that way inclined um, mm. somehow. Um, so there's a part that's unanswerable. Mm. Um, I remember being brought up as a kid with a um, a very strong view of my mum saying that you don't need to do things just because you're getting paid. You can just mm -hmm. do things because it's the right thing to do. Um, uh, I don't know if that, clearly it sunk in in some way. Mm -hmm. um, but I think now as an adult looking back on my life, there's been really obvious examples of where people have helped me in getting to where I am today, mm -hmm. um, particularly during those formative years as a teenager. So. Mm -hmm. um, I can see the cumulative effects of good and bad luck in in contributing to how and where I am today. And so, mm -hmm. to think that any of us get to where we are alone is just crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I think the, the sooner we can all recognise our, I guess, mutual in interdependencies, then the better. And it's just about paying it forward, really, mm -hmm. but in a karmic sort of way. That I think if we all thought that way, we would all benefit as well. It's not just about one-way altruism, I guess. Yeah. Um, so you started, after uni, you started, you started your first job at an engineering consultancy, was it? Or? During uni, I started working in contaminated lands, mm -hmm. um, which is just putting dirt in jars and water <laughs> in jars and 
seeing some of the shittiest parts of a city, really, mm. <laughs> um, from an environmental <laughs> harm perspective. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, I graduated into the GFC. So mm. I was, I'd say our, I feel like my year out of university was the last year to have it good. And then mm -hmm. everyone that came after us really struggled for work. Mm -hmm. um, so I did um, a bit of time in a consulting firm in Adelaide before moving to Queensland, um, consulted up there for a couple of years in um, uh, like hydrology, so flood, flood, flood modelling mm -hmm. mostly. Um, and then uh, that was where I sort of left the, the formal corporate life for a little while and joined Engineers Without Borders at that mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Um, and did those kind of entrepreneurial rumblings start to fire up? When did they come about? Yeah, I mean, like, for a long time, I thought that it came up sort of when I joined Engineers Without Borders and I guess had a bit more exposure to other ideas again and conversations and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I guess, I suppose it's probably always been my natural state is to look for other things, but it just sort of, I don't know where it went over university. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess when I moved to Queensland, um, when did it come back up? So I met, I've always been involved in surf life saving. Mm -hmm. And so this, our surf life saving coach in Queensland was also starting a new business focused around CrossFit. Mm -hmm. um, and this was right at the, the early days of CrossFit in Australia, not the hyped up Reebok branded thing it is today. Yeah. The, the merchandising <laughs> CrossFit yeah. with black volleys. Just um, the cult that it was. Yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Riding out of, yeah. Mm. And so I sort of supported him a little bit in building community ar around his CrossFit business and what did that mean? And mm -hmm. maybe that's, it just reconnected me with what it, like the excitement of, of creating something new. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's when I found sure. it again. Yeah. And um, I mean, what was working at in Engineers Without Borders like? And uh, I mean, if you just speak a little of what they do. Yeah. yeah. So I think I'll try and answer with like the audience in mind a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Um, for me, the, in the corporate sector, it wasn't very purposeful. I was working in land development at the time and dealing mm -hmm. with like land developers. Um, and there was a lot of good things about that job. I really loved the people I was working with, um, but it really lacked that sense of purpose that mm -hmm. it didn't, wasn't that fulfilling. Um, and so moving to Engineers Without Borders, it felt like an opportunity to sort of explore what a more purposeful career might be. And particularly in your like, early 20s when you don't have a mortgage or anything like that, um, that's the time to play and sort of figure out, I think, what what you care about. Mm -hmm. um, so Engineers Without Borders Australia uh, are a volunteer network uh, that reaches mostly through university chapters around Australia. Um, and I don't know how they would describe themselves today, but historically I've described them as sort of having two, two or three faces. Um, an inward face into Australia, which is really around building the capability of emerging engineers in Australia to sort of mm -hmm. operate with a greater social conscience and you know, backing that up with some skills. Um, the other face is international development, and so that, that really revolves around long-term capacity building of developing communities. So the Indigenous Australia, South Asia, and Southeast Asia were big mm -hmm. focuses. Um, and I guess the third face would be around uh, helping corporate Australia operate with a greater social conscience as well. Mm -hmm. um, so forming corporate partnerships and helping those corporate partners engage in community work so that they can learn from it and, mm -hmm. and equally so the community has access to skills and capabilities that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Mm -hmm. And when you joined them, what was your role? Like what were you 
Uh, I joined them as knowledge manager, mm -hmm. um, which I don't think anybody really knew what it meant. Um, <laughs> at the time, mm -hmm. they'd built a new website. Um, so a big part of it was helping curate sort of communities of practice online around mm -hmm. different the different thematic areas that engineers of that board has operated in. Um, but in reality, I was then quickly seconded to Engineers Australia and spent the best, or all of 2011, and I guess there was a bit of a ramp in and ramp out, mm -hmm. um, working with Engineers Australia to facilitate the year of humanitarian engineering. Mm -hmm. So that's where I met my business partner, or got to work closely with my business partner today, Kyle Lofgren. Mm -hmm. um, and we really sp spent that year bouncing between the not-for-profit sector, international development, military, um, and other engineering organisations and peak bodies to figure out like, what does humanitarian e engineering even mean? Mm -hmm. um, what's the imperative to do something in this space? And then uh, what's the industry response? Like how is the industry going to mobilise around this, this thing that we've decided to call humanitarian engineering? Mm -hmm. um, so I'd say that, yeah, there was a lot of stuff I did at Engineers Without Borders, but that became the real focus was actually working across the sector to explore that question and to yeah, I guess see what response the, the sector might take. Mm. Um, I think this is just an impression, but I feel that like people have this view, especially those kind of like me who spent a number of years in corporate life, yeah. that working for the not-for-profit not sector might be more meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, did you find that in working with Engineers Without Borders? Or w what was the, I suppose, distinction between, say, the, your corporate experience and working? Yeah. I mean, I think the grass is always greener. Yeah. So, um, and that's why I became an entrepreneur or yeah. sort of mm. dedicated myself to being, so I think there's, first of all, I don't think you need to start your own business to be an entrepreneur. Um, sure. I yeah. think you can be entrepreneurially minded and in fact, that's what the world is calling mm. on more people to be like. Um, but if everybody tried to start their own company, it wouldn't mm -hmm. work. Um, so I think, I think it was after my experience with engineers without borders that I decided to start my own thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I've always been entrepreneurial. Um, but in, to contrast the two experiences, um, uh, corporate sector, highly rational, very disciplined, very methodical, mm -hmm. can deliver things very, very quickly and efficiently, mm -hmm. um, but perhaps lacks the soul. And, and mm -hmm. you know, Simon Sinek's why, how, what has become very good at the how and the what, but have sort of lost focus on the why. Mm -hmm. And even you even become persecuted in a way internally if you even try and raise that conversation, at mm. least back when I was there. Mm. In contrast, the not-for-profit sector, at least in my experience, was very good at the why, mm. okay at the how, and then became like a bit lost in the, or a bit lost in the how and the what, really. So mm. very purposeful orientated, purpose orientation, uh, but I would say the emotive, of it seems to get the best of the organisation. So mm -hmm. um, not necessarily EWB, but I guess a general observation is in some toxic not-for-profits, it seems to cultivate a sense of self-righteousness mm -hmm. that because they're purpose-orientated and because they're social justice warriors that the world owes them something. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's important to recognise the value exchange that we all enter into when we go about our work and our mm -hmm. days. So... Um, in a not-for-profit, you know, you, you need to still be um, focused on the value exchange that your donors are expecting. Mm -hmm. So people give you money, but they still expect something in return. Yeah. 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 And I, that's, I feel like the not-for-profit sector 
at times loses sight on that because they're just too, so focused on mm. their social justice mission. Yeah. Um, I mean, I heard this, this might be a little too cynical, but I heard that not-for-profits should really be called not-for-tax yeah. because at the end of the day, they still need to provide value. They still need yeah. to even make a profit, but how that profit is distributed is a different structure. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I think even today, like ten, when I was at EWB, mm. you know, B Corp wasn't really around yet either. Yeah. So, mm. um, but now I think there's, if you're purpose driven, there's mm. a lot more conduits that you can go down. Like there's clearer, um, you know, online tools for you to screen potential corporate employees for their focus on CSR or other like mm. purpose alignments. You know, Arup is a fantastic company in Australia that I think has been very good at staying true to their focus on being a good, um, uh, mm. a good corporate citizen. How do you spell um, A R U P. Yeah. Like built environment firm. Um, you know, there's B corps, there's mm. small startups. Um, so I guess we're kind of, yeah. To to just apply the word not for profit is as a label for like purpose orientated organisations doesn't really work anymore. Mm. It's kind of yeah. Do yeah. your research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to shift conversation a little bit. Um, yep. I suppose the aim of this podcast is not so much a, a glorification of entrepreneurship. Uh, it's really about people who found something meaningful in, in what they do. Yeah. But there tends to be a lot of glorification of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, you've been an entrepreneur for a few years. Um, what, what's something about entrepreneurship that you would like to say that is not being said? Um, I'm gonna. Th can I? Can we like dance around that question? Please. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I you're like my spiritual guru in a way <laughs> over the years. So, um, you know, the Buddhists say like life is suffering, right? Mm. So I think one of the questions I have at the moment is like, am I stuck in this sort of perpetual psychological trap of needing to suffer? <laughs> um, mm. Can I not get out of that? And then so entrepreneurship, yes, like it's glorified. It's misery for the most part. Um, mm. It's lonely, and we and I'll talk about that in a second. Mm. But I'm curious from you in your travels, like maybe the, the question is, would an insane person become an entrepreneur and in the starting your own business thing? Yeah. Do you think, it, like, do you know what I mean? Um, I, I think you're right, like from, from the Buddhist yeah. point of view in that life is suffering and then a lot of it is, if it's not suffering, it's delayed gratification. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and just kind of reflecting on the brief successes that I've, I've had, it, um, they were very brief after a lot of kind of pushing and pain and you yeah. know, all of that. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's kind of like, uh, and I've spoken about this in the podcast before, but it's kind of like mountain climbing mm -hmm. in that you ask mountain climbers, why do you keep yeah. doing what you're doing even though there's frostbite and your sleepless nights and your head swells and uh, you know all of that stuff that they go through yeah uh, and I assume it's for that brief moment when you get to the peak and you see the horizon yeah and then you climb back down <laughs> and do it all over again yeah. <laughs> I'll hack that analogy <laughs> yeah um, mm. yeah look I'd say oh, but w I, I would imagine most people would realize that about entrepreneurship that it's not all mm. fame um, 
I mean, uh, maybe. And to and just to cut in, it's kind of the best entrepreneurs that I know, kind of like yourself, are kind of without without the fanfare, mm -hmm. in that they do what they do, they do it quietly, they just get stuff done, and then slowly, what slowly takes build. Ten years to build, not even that success. Yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, there's lots of cliches. I think the like the internet has sort of thrown, invented and thrown or distributed all the various different cliches I could say about entrepreneurship, but mm -hmm. I think it still surprises me how often I'll encounter one in real life and then be like, oh, that's what it means. Mm. So, you know, the saying fail fast, fail frequently is mm. mostly applied in conversation around products, but mm. the reality is there are so many different dimensions of running a business that, and that fail fast, fail frequently applies to all of them. You know. Mm how to construct a board, who to hire, what clients to do business with, mm -hmm. what product you're building, how to manage your finances, your tax. Like mm -hmm. Every aspect of your business calls on you to um, be, forces you to be, hum um, I guess, show humility because if you don't accept that you're wrong, the business will fail mm -hmm. across any one of those dimensions while it's young. So, sure. and, and I think that they also go kind of internally in for example, the people you work with, your, your mm -hmm. co-founders, mm. um, who are the right people that you want to yep. start this journey on. Um, just with you, was there one failure that taught you the most? Is there <laughs> one fa like failure that you're thinking of? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll let you speak to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah probably, mm. I mean, yeah, there's, uh, Several. I mean, type human in its current form is probably, um, you know, what I consider to be the most successful business I've created so far. And mm -hmm. so, um, there are certainly other things I'm very proud of. But I guess as you, you know, move through things, it's it's. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there'll be something else that'll come in a decade's time that will dwarf type human. Um, but yeah, the one that I learned the most, um, I think there's two. Um, there's one, so one that's more about, so um, how would I describe it? So two examples, one is quite external, like around the very objective aspects of, of doing a startup, and I'll mm -hmm. talk to that. And the other one's very inward facing, like learning mm -hmm. a lot about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that's a, a, a quick aside um, in answer to your question around what people don't know about entrepreneurship is I think it calls you to be a very resilient individual, which mm -hmm. I, I'm certainly drawing a lot of, um, a lot from mindfulness. And I've got Sam Harris's new pod uh, app and doing his mindfulness stuff at the yeah, moment. That definitely helps. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll start with the external one and then I'll mm -hmm. talk about the inward one. Um, uh, I developed a marketplace, well, not even developed. I saw an opportunity to position a marketplace in uh, sort of, event ticketing mm -hmm. um, in a particular niche um, and in the spirit of not over investing in the product um, was like okay what's the quickest way we can put something out there start to see if anyone likes it and then go from there um, so we found a niche we span up a, a very rough and ready site with some hacked sort of workflows in it mm -hmm. certainly wasn't meant for event ticketing but so long as it was up so what we would do is we would ring the organizations that would do ticketing for and then we would sort of set them all up in the platform so that they didn't get exposed to, well, they just wouldn't have been able to do it themselves. Mm. Um, but the front end seemed to work fine for like individuals who are looking to buy tickets. Mm -hmm. um, 
and then we managed to get a very large uh, event on there. Um, I was also, this is, a, this is a side hustle at the time, mm. so I was also working, and it was just a perfect storm. I remember it clearly, it was a Sunday night, I was in Sydney, I was going into a client, like management consulting client presentation the next day, some things were fucking up there, so I'm in the mm. office trying to fix those, fix those fuck ups. Can I swear on this? Okay, so. Um, let me check with the boss. Yeah, all right. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then this big event went live, and mm. I in fairness to us, I don't even think they expected just how quickly their tickets would sell. Mm. Um, but we did $90,000 of sales in like the first 20 minutes of tickets opening. And um, oh. something broke. I don't know what broke. It could have been us. It could have been their mobile app. It was probably us because um, it just was never built for that. Mm. Um, and we just spent, I spent like a good month just manually reconciling orders and making sure people had their tickets and being um, harassed by the, rightfully harassed by the, the people that we'd done ticketing for. Mm. Um, yeah, but just just spent a lot of, not just time, but emotional energy in trying to fix that problem. Mm. Um, so the lesson there, I guess, is, um, you know, it is very good to prototype and to, like, not over-invest in products, mm -hmm. but I think, um, I think don't underinvest either, and really test mm. things really thoroughly was the, le the lesson there. Mm. Um, um, but there's a positive lesson in the you know hundred thousand dollars of ticket sales in a matter of a week or something like that. Um, it was kind of prototyping at its finest to demonstrate you had something before you built something. Yep. Um, yeah. But just not worth the emotional energy. And so maybe that's the lesson actually in one way there that building a product that does like a hundred thousand of revenue in a year is just as emotionally taxing as something that does a million dollars a year or more. So mm. if you're going to do something... Or even $10,000. $10,000, yeah, even yeah. worse. I mean, <laughs> if you're going to do something, you want to really make sure it's going to be worth it. Um, mm. So, yeah. That kind of flies in the face of, I suppose, the whole lean startup movement, where it's build an MVP that's, I wouldn't say terrible, but that you're embarrassed by and then put it yeah. out there and see what see what works, see what doesn't work, and then yeah. pivot from that. Oh, sorry. Huh? Well, yeah, you're right. Like, and we certainly followed the Lean Startup to a T in, in mm. a lot of ways. Um, but I feel like what we've, and the good entrepreneurs and the good business people still do this, but I think what we've lost in the like, mainstream conversation, if you like, is just good business. Like, mm. uh, yes, you need to go through all that, but you know, spend at least a day or two doing some rationalization on what you think the market opportunity is. So if you succeed, mm. how much money will this make you? Um, and at least just making sure you're clear on what your assumptions are and what your road your roadmap is mm. um, to getting to that target. I think it's still surprising how many entrepre prospective entrepreneurs um, go into these ideas without defining a revenue target for themselves and then like a pricing model and sort of working mm. backwards from there to say, okay, this is how we're gonna get to a point of making some good money. Um, mm. Do you want me to tell the other story? Yeah, oh, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other story Raoul's heard before, so mm. he's like s smiling <laughs> like at me, knowing, knowing full well what, what I'm about to talk about. Mm. Um, first funded startup, uh, I'll give the abbreviated version of the story. I um, was quite naive, I think, going into it. Um, you were there working mm -hmm. on it with us. Um, uh, very small funding amount, so we were on a very tight runway. Um, and anyway, so the, the, the external stuff's probably irrelevant to the internal stuff that I went through, which is just yeah. when you receive funding um, and then you have people work for you, um, that's a really uh, 
uh, it's a position I don't take lightly. Like it's a responsibility I don't take lightly. Um, and so, so the, um, certainly the highest point was having an investor give you money and go, yes, we, we believe in you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the lowest point is then realizing you didn't succeed on the money, like in, in commercializing the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and f- so for me, um, yeah, I mean, look at, at the time, my, my now wife, girlfriend at the time, separated with me because I was a, uh, an asshole basically at the lowest point of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, no, I don't think I've ever asked you what it was like to be around me at the time, but I imagine, not, I don't know, it's hard for me to put myself back into that moment, but I know, I guess looking back on it now, it's certainly about being honest around what it takes to keep yourself happy and sane and mm. like be able to endure and, and go the long run. Mm. You know, the, the whole ramen noodle diet isn't really a sustainable way to build a business. Mm. Um, yeah, I think for me it was because I was at that point where I just, I don't think I'd quit my corporate job. I was working part-time mm. at my old job and I was working with you guys uh, three days a week or two days a week. Yeah. And for me it was like this adventure because it was literally like the mythical startup. You were literally in a garage yeah. or in, in the stables <laughs> working on desks that were didn't even have legs. It was just piles of magazines that... A board, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> a board rested on. Yeah. So I was like, yes, this is, this is the you know the startup myth. Yeah. Um, but but then I, I did see what you went through and and um, and it was, I mean, I don't think I could empathize because there was so much happening in yeah. that. Your girlfriend left you. Um, the startup wasn't working. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but then you found yeah. out some other news <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that your girlfriend got pregnant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, was pregnant. Yeah. Who's now your wife, Helen, lovely person. Hi, yeah. Helen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I can't. I can't imagine what what that was like for you. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just like a. Um, um, uh, yeah, I mean, so like to set the scene, I guess maybe we've skimmed over some details. So mm-hmm. we had a startup that was looking to do, um, it was effectively a white label talent marketplace. Mm-hmm. We thought that every corporate would take it up to help their employees operate more like gig workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found zero traction in the corporate sector. We did find some traction in volunteer organizations and we started to build out software to support organizations to better curate volunteers. Um, that's the backstory. I think we had about a six month runway, I think, in funding from, from memory. So we had six months to do something, maybe, no, a year. We had a year to do something. And through that year, um, I didn't have a, a stable place to live. I just like couch surfed and house sat my way around Melbourne. There was a low point of sleeping on Kai, my business partner's couch. And mm-hmm. yeah, that was fun. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so certainly like life just enveloped into this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, like there's a lot of fun romantic parts of yeah, like tables with magazines stacked up. Um, mm. But um, maybe that's where, like, uh, it became self-destructive, I think. Mm. Um, so the machicism, is that how I pronounce it? Masochism, I think. Ma- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, getting used to the pain and 
and not doing anything about it. That's right, yeah. yeah. So it, it almost became too much of the badge of honour. And mm. so I think, mm. um, yeah, certainly for me, like growing, developing more responsibilities in life and things like that has actually become a better, maybe a better entrepreneur. So I've mm. been le- less self-destructive and be able, to, be able to focus more on actually, you know, if we're going to do this, we've got to get paid. Mm. And we've got to actually make money. We can't just, yeah, do the, the, the ramen noodle Mm. Um, pathway. I think another thing I should say is um, from someone on the outside looking in, I think one thing I, I did notice is that when you found out Helen was pregnant, it kind of focused your attention into I think maybe forgetting the the romance or the myth of of, of following with this on the startup journey and just yeah. getting focused on okay on practical on doing yeah. something practical, yeah. i.e. making money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, could you talk to that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, there was a really simple version, which is just get, get a job. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had some debts to pay as well, so this is like a practical way. I think most entrepreneurs are probably finding themselves in a level of debt at that point in their journey if they haven't, like, mm. it's not just about spending other people's money other people's money you generally draw down on your own savings or credit cards and things like that as well mm-hmm. um, so maybe there's kind of like phases to going through it it's kind of like an immediate tactical need which is yeah survive mm-hmm. <laughs> um, rent food all of that yeah yep. <laughs> um, and then out of survival mode then becomes some reflection around okay um, like what next I guess mm-hmm. and so for me I, um, you know, the first survival gig I took was more management consulting, mm. um, but and it was you know a long way away from technology. Um, but then the reflection mode was okay. Well, like, how did I? What went wrong in the startup in, in terms of? There was a whole bunch of stuff outside of our control, and at the time, I would say that most of that is market. Not to say that you can't do that. Think about that. But what are the skills? that I want to learn so that when I eventually come back to doing this again, mm. I'll be able to be more successful and minimize the risk of failure. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that revolved around how do we build software? So mm-hmm. when it worked for Common Code as the second destination and um, you know, Daryl and I at Common Code are great friends still now, although we don't see each other as much, but um, there was able to work for one of their startup clients for a year, um, mm-hmm. running their software team and getting their first um, releases out. So they got paid. and then went over to Daryl's business and helped him sort of restructure his agency and got to see the, the trials and tribulations there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it was kind of towards the end of there that I think I went to ThoughtWorks for a year as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was kind of like during that recovery phase, it's sort of emotional recovery, mm-hmm. um, you know, rebuilding skills in areas that you, that you were weak on in that previous iteration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then giving yourself the permission to sort of be a bit playful and figure out what, mm. what next. Because I think one thing that did happen after that, you really established a quite an impressive career as a consultant sure. and as a um, as a consultant. And um, if I can digress a little bit, like your story reminds me of an interview I listened to of uh, Francis Ford Coppola, the, he's the director of The Godfather. Okay, yeah. And uh, he was saying that how he was this young starry-eyed filmmaker he saw mm-hmm. himself as his author as you know only making art films yeah, yeah and similar story his wife got pregnant and then the godfather came across 
to him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, if my wife wasn't pregnant, I would not have taken The Godfather because that was too commercial of a movie. Yeah. He saw himself, he would have seen himself as selling out. Um, but he did take it and he kind of put his own artistic stamp on it. Yeah. And that kind of made him and that kind of gave him the leverage to do other films yeah. like Apocalypse Now and you know, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. That's pretty important, impressive. Mm. I mean, I think selling out is an interesting phrase. Mm. Um, I th- maybe I'm, I've just told myself this enough to believe it and or maybe, <laughs> maybe I have. But I get excited about working with and supporting other leaders and mm. I think there's a real drought of like inspired purposeful leadership in Australia and, and perhaps mm. that applies around the world. And so my, my lie that I tell myself, if you like, is that if I had have come across one of these inspired leaders whilst working in the corporate sector, that I would have stayed mm. and really like, wanted to support them. Mm. Um, so selling out to me is... is um, and sorry, in the absence of that, you know, we've started our own business and then we mm. get to choose who we... Like, ultimately, a consulting business is just about supporting a courageous individual. Mm. Um, we are often abstract, like you're working for a bank or you're working for whoever but behind the brand is still just an individual who wants to do something and needs to call in some external help. Mm. Um, so ultimately that's still what we're doing. Um, so selling out to me, I think is, would just be not living a life, or not not focused on like creating a better, f- um, a better Australia or a better future in a, in a yeah. really direct way. Um, and we can do, there's many different paths to doing that. Mm. And I think also it's a very, it's a very personal definition on, on what is yep. meaningful to you. Like Joseph Campbell says that you need to follow your bliss. Yeah. And that's a very personal thing. Like right. your bliss could definitely be being supporting, you know, a corporate leader. Yeah. It could be, you know, being a garbage collector or yep. whatever it might be. Well this and is like I mean, this is Gary Vaynerchuk also bangs mm-hmm. a lot about saying, you know, if you're happy in your day nine to five job and doing that mm-hmm. then awesome. We're like very mm-hmm. happy for you, keep doing it. Yeah. Life must be great. Mm-hmm. But if you're not happy, then like we we, li- we do live in a very mm. empowering time to do something about it, and so then figure yeah. out what that, that something is. And maybe if we can rewind and go back a, a little yep. bit. Um, say for me personally, like one of my formative experiences growing up was my dad, and yep. he was a consultant, worked for himself, did very well. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I used to follow him around on his business trips yep. and just saw kind of how he operated and the independence he had. Mm-hmm. And so then when I started my career in a nine to five job, there was a dissonance there, there was a mismatch. Yeah. And I wasn't, it took me six years, but I realized I wasn't following mm-hmm. my bliss. Um, how, did, how did you manage that? Trial and error, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of, I think I met you around that time, around six mm-hmm. years ago, where I was, I was just going to every meetup that even mildly interested me. Yeah. And then kind of narrowed in on the tech and social entrepreneurship meetups. Mm-hmm. And then kind of met you and then kind of worked at Small Giants and that opened my eyes up to yeah. a whole other world. Mm. And then, and thanks to you, kind of Disruptive Business Network and this podcast <laughs> yeah. came along. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Collaboration. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just trial and error, I suppose. I think maybe that's the message. Like, it's easy to 
construct a like a retrospective narrative around this stuff. But mm. in the moment, I think all of us are just doing trial and error. Mm. Um, yeah. And so, like, yeah, in thinking back through my experiences, I think you need to be self-aware enough to understand just how much a sort of risk, I guess, you can expose yourself to. And risk isn't just financial, it's also emotional and mm. a whole bunch of other things. Um, and then just be realistic about the fact that you're going to be like mm. doing a whole bunch of trial and error along mm. the way. Um, yeah, yeah. And so just take it back to maybe a formative experience mm -hmm. for your, maybe in your childhood, was there, did you have someone you looked up to or, or someone that's kind of formed your worldview? Uh, not really actually, like I've, I, um, I mean, there's. I took things from various different people. Um, mm. No, I, but I, I, I think I've been a pretty stubborn person since I was a very young age. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. Look, I, so I'll give you an answer, I guess. Um, you know, so I was a, a national level swimmer as a kid, and mm. or up until I was nineteen. Um, so, I think I quickly learned. Um, the link between sort of effort, reward, effort and reward. So, mm -hmm. you know, thirty hours of swimming a week, like, translates pretty directly to whether you're going to do a good time or not. And then had a very, very disciplined coach, um, almost intimidating. Mm -hmm. um, not, no, almost definitely intimidating um, in a good way. Um, so that was like a real installation of discipline, but also effort reward. Um, but look, I think. Uh, you know, some nudges from mum and dad around, um, well, I've already used the quote from my mum. My dad, would, he was a big union man. He mm. um, led the union um, movement in Adelaide when Rupert Murdoch bought out the printing press. Um, oh, wow. So he sort of fought for fair, um, fair uh, redundancy packages and things like that to all the people that were laid off during that. Mm -hmm. uh, when he died, the joke was that there'd only be one person that would get him to sit up and that would be if Rupert Murdoch turned up right now he'd probably <laughs> jump out of his coffin and strangle him um, uh, and you know he, he I guess taught I remember early on in uni trying to have a chat with him about the link between unemployment and inflation and how you know what, what the government does in, in those circumstances and mm. um, he cut me off pretty quickly and sort of just said something along the lines of I don't really care if the unemployment rate is like 2% or 6%, a, a guy on his ass is a guy on his ass and they deserve to be helped. Mm. Um, and so I suppose I've always, that's always stuck. Like mm. that, it, yeah, it really doesn't matter if it's 10 people or a million people that are suffering, like they, they're still human and deserve some compassion and in, like, mm. I guess some dignity. Um, yeah. yeah, that's probably, that's probably a quote that's really stuck with me for a long time. Yeah, I think it sounds like it because I think that kind of ties into the work you're doing now, and especially blockchain. Um, you really took to blockchain like a doctor water. Yeah. Um, can you explain why? Like, what what was it about blockchain that really, yeah, got got to you? Um, the common theme of my entrepreneurial efforts is since we started was certainly around rethinking how we organise. Uh, so mm -hmm. how we organise in in business, how we organise in. Um, uh, like civil life or civic life and how we organize in public life mm. um, and uh, I guess if we say sort of pre-blockchain 
we were quite limited in, in how we could rethink that and, and sort of present tools around it. There was you know, hol holacracy and mm -hmm. um, responsive organizations sort of became quite popular, but these are very, I guess, um, I'd call them blunt instruments at the time. Like mm -hmm. We really live in a, a world which is um, you know, very structured and defined by like our economics and you know, with wealth inequality sort of skyrocketing at the moment, there's clearly some, you know, the US is basically plutocracy, I'm pretty sure. Um, mm -hmm. So blockchain came in and I guess what really excited me was, um, this is like 2015, um, was the opportunity that, that it afforded us to empower communities or groups of people to you know, write the rules themselves around how they would organize and how they would live as a, as a community or collection of communities. Mm -hmm. um, and I still don't know that I've got a, a fair answer to like so where, where that trajectory is going, but mm. if anybody wanted to geek out and read about it, there's a mm. book by the economist um, Hayek uh, called The Denationalization of Money. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an economist, Nobel, Nobel laureate economist, wrote the book in 1974. Mm -hmm. um, and he basically calls for an open market for money. So not anybody could create their own money mm -hmm. um, because the purpose of money is a store of value for individuals and society. Mm -hmm. And if we look at Venezuela right now, you've got hyperinflation. And so the, the utility of money as a store of value has been completely eroded by the government's mishandling of it. Mm -hmm. And so the citizens then suffer. So Hayek calls for a, like an open market of money so that um, citizens can choose the best store of value and we don't then get these scenarios where governments can abuse their power across money. Mm. Um, so denationalization of money, if you want to geek out there. Mm. Um, how it links to type human. Um, uh, you know, our, our purpose as type human is to see how technology can support human dignity in the world around us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the three global challenges at the moment are climate change, the threat of nuclear war, and technological disruption. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it's my strong opinion at the moment that we don't have enough of civil society sort of educated in how technology interacts with these issues. And that's often portrayed as a negative in media at the moment, but it's also as a potential positive as well. How do we use these tools to affect mm -hmm. change in those, those fields? Um, so, you know, in 10 years time, maybe Type Human will focus across a range of different emerging technologies. Mm -hmm. um, but for now, we're deeply focused in blockchain because we mm -hmm. see it as a, um, a sort of a first step in uh, rethinking our digital lives and how we can use technology to mm -hmm. service human dignity in the world around us. I think that kind of ties beautifully to the quote that a guy on his ass is a guy on his ass and needs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. needs help. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is, I suppose that with blockchain, that help can be scaled to to most people in the, in the world. Um, I think it's, um, I think most people kind of tie blockchain to Bitcoin mm. and that's their understanding of it. But maybe if you could speak to the work you're doing with Red Cross, for example, on yep. how they're using blockchain to enhance human dignity. Yeah. Sure. So I think, um, yeah, try to simplify the blockchain conversation. We talk mm. more about Web3 than blockchain. Mm. And um, what I would say, I'll draw upon a conversation I just had this morning. Mm. Um, what we're really trying to do in this is, um, this might come across anarchistic, hopefully it doesn't, but at the moment our digital lives are uh, prone to human points of failure. So um, by that I mean you know, Facebook could have been a very altruistic community serving organisation um, 
but a human decided for it not to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so what Web3 will do is it provides us effectively with an alternative governance arrangement around how these digital organizations are operated. So rather than relying on a human to make decisions, um, we can express our organizational our, our, our rules for how we make decisions as an organization into code mm -hmm. and then have those instructions automatically executed once certain things happen. So um, if, uh, well, the, the famous example is the DAO, which is, was, is also a terrible example, but I'll <laughs> skip the terrible one. Mm -hmm. The DAO is just a community fund and the mm -hmm. goal of this fund was to, everyone could put their money in, in exchange, they got some 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 tokens that they could vote with, mm -hmm. um, and then the community could equally put project proposals to the fund um, in order to get money and go and work on something. So the idea was, you know, centralize some money, give provide a mechanism for the community to put proposals in place to work on stuff, and then have the community vote on what proposals they wanted to see come to life. Mm -hmm. um, and when a project got the votes that it was needed, that was necessary to be successful, the, f the money would just auto-execute to the people that mm -hmm. submitted the proposal and off they, off, they went, off they go. So that's just an example of how we get humans out of the way. Um, at Red Cross, um, what we're doing there is, I'd call it probably a hybrid Web3 solution now, mm -hmm. like it or has all the, the philosophies of, of Web3, but we're sort of doing a mix. Um, the focus is on uh, making it easier to volunteer um, and take, act, take humanitarian action in Australia. Mm -hmm. And one of the key barriers to doing that at the moment is just the sheer, um, it's very hard for organisations like Red Cross to evaluate the reputation or trustworthiness of an individual who's presenting to them. Mm -hmm. So today the only way they can do that is to run police checks, working with children's checks over those individuals, mm -hmm. which is a very costly exercise. Um, so we see sort of two, using blockchain technology, we see two steps to solving that. The first step is actually uses very little blockchain, but we automate that compliance check of police checks and working mm -hmm. with children's checks. But then we offer those credentials back to the volunteer as a, what's called a blockchain attestation. So this is just a blockchain certificate on mm -hmm. your mobile phone mm -hmm. that's not owned, it's, it's legit, it's really hard to communicate how this works via a podcast, but <laughs> I guess just trust me in saying the data is owned by the individual and there's no mm. corporation that will yeah. try to lay claim to that. Mm. Um, so they can then represent those certificates any other time they want to. And I guess then step three will be once we have this platform and um, standard, global standard for allowing individuals to hold on to these certificates, um, what else might we put in somebody's hands to be able to be used in the future to demonstrate their trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. um, some easy examples might be like Academy XI or General Assembly, all these sort of on-demand skills courses that we do today. Mm -hmm. There's no way of digitally presenting them to mm -hmm. a, an employer if mm -hmm. you want to work for them. Um, so at the moment, um, the value of them probably is lower than, I think they're gonna be much more valuable certifications in the future than they are today. Mm -hmm. um, equally, um, project experiences, all these sorts of things, we can start to collect, um, basically everything on your LinkedIn profile mm. should be data that you hold in a mobile app for yourself and can be digitally resurfaced um, in a trustworthy way whenever you like, mm -hmm. so that we can better assess if you're trustworthy or not. Yeah, um, that sounds you know fascinating. And I've kind of been involved with the, sort of the gen genesis of Type Human and um, Doing your work now, what, what, what makes you feel alive? <laughs> uh, moments like this, um, <laughs> honestly, like hanging out with you. Um, mm. 
uh, I get a lot of buzz in having in just working with amazing people, and particularly the people that have chosen to align with us. We've we've gone through some struggles over the last internal struggles over the last twelve months. We had a bit of a uh, turnover in the leadership team, which. Um, to be honest, I kind of expected, um, but it doesn't make it any easier when it happens. Mm. Um, so to have more people come into the organisation who uh, are actually just super engaged and you know, proactive and doing their doing their parts of the business without um, concern is just a real thrill. Mm-hmm. To sort of turn up and have people with ideas around how to grow this thing and they care for it as well. Because um, I guess, like, yeah, before that, it's just me. Like it's really just a Nick Burns show, and I'm mm. not interested in being yeah. a Nick Burns show. So, yeah, the greatest thrill mm. is in seeing other people choose to um, jump on board and um, mm. roll their sleeves up and, and sort of see something in see, see see some potential in this as well. Mm. Um, I think the other side is probably we need more business owners taking a stand at the moment for what they think is is or isn't working in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so toward the end of last year, like we took a stand against the assistance and access, access and assistance bill, AA bill in Australia. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, and that was remarkable to see how many people turned yeah. up to the, that event. And um, we haven't followed that up yet. Uh, and mostly because I'm still reflecting on how we move away from a tactical response to something more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something really interesting in this space between public life and civil society at the moment that I think so um, just quickly, the ANA bill was a government requirement that uh, required startups or techno- technology companies to create a backdoor. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's compromised this basically entire Australian technology community. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it was not. It's not actually. I mean, the, the use of the word AA bill is kind of misleading because it's mm. no longer a bill. It's legislation, and it's enforceable mm. today in Australia. Um, and it can ask any employee of any tech, any organization to implement a backdoor into their software mm-hmm. um, to allow the, the agencies to, to gain access to that data. Um, and then there are severe penalties for even like reporting that that's happened. So it's like 10 years imprisonment for like sh- stating the fact that you've been asked to do it and things like that. So wow. it really mm-hmm. seems to lack a lot of the checks and balances that we'd expect for um, a modern mm-hmm. society like Australia. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, just to kind of wind up, but, but one thing, one question I really want to get from you is, I suppose another uh, point of admiration really is kind of the network you've built mm-hmm. since uh, since you've started your journey, and I think it's quite an amazing, formidable, formidable network from corporate CEOs to not-for-profit leaders. Um, how did that come about? <laughs> Good question. Uh, I really don't know. Um, I think, like in all honesty, a lot of it's good luck, um, and you know, I don't think it's it's not something that I could codify. I think mm. um, I think I've always been a pretty authentic person. Like I'm not. Some people would have called this into question recently, but <laughs> um, like I genuinely care a lot about. The clients we work for, and will, um, and I'm incredibly loyal to, to serving our clients. And so, um, I guess if there's any sort of one thing I've tried to do over the last few years is just like be true to that. And mm. there's been fu- screw ups along the way. Um, none of us are perfect, but I think my intent has always been there. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I feel like maybe people can just 
sense that? I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, um, I think coming to you know the Type Human Breakfast and the other events, I think as opposed to the other tech events, and this is something I really don't have the words for, but there was this warmth there. Right. There was this sense of, even though there were strangers in the room, there yeah. was a sense of um, belonging. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too airy-fairy, but, <laughs> yeah. but that's what it felt like. And, okay. I, and I'm not sure, I was trying to think about what that was, like how that was engineered, but I don't have an answer, it was just there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could have just been in the space, it was quite a beautiful office at yeah, this breakfast. that could be it. Yeah. Um, mm. Oh, that's, that's nice. It's, it's, mm. it's probably a reflection I haven't thought of enough. Um, mm. um, if you had have asked me a different question, the response would have been, I think that's something we need to work on at the moment in the business, that we don't mm. actually have enough of a, a point of gravity. Um, you know, our, our business is currently sort of spread out over a few different project offices, and so mm -hmm. I feel like the thing we're most exposed to at the moment is um, maybe a lack of belonging in what it means to be associated with Type Human, and we need to really work on that over the next few months to sort of bring that back together so that, you know, somebody that chooses to work for us is reminded why <laughs> regularly. Yeah. They're not just sitting in like a lot, like a lot of people, even when we're working in the not-for-profit sector, we still do maintain fairly competitive salaries, but some of the people that have worked for us have certainly chosen to take a, a pay cut compared to what they could get in the private sector as a highly capable techno tech worker at the moment. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm constantly reflecting, well, a big reflection of this year has been like how do we honour um, those people and, and how do we continue to focus on that, that sense of belonging? Like what is our value proposition to the individuals who choose to align to type human? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that we've, um, I'm not really sure we've nailed that yet. Okay. Yeah. Um, I suppose just to finish up, uh, say someone listening to this, yeah. um, if they're in a mid-career malaise and looking for yeah. something more meaningful, what, what would your advice be? Take a holiday if you yeah. can afford it. Seriously, mm. like, go find some cheap part of the world and mm. sit on a beach and read and talk to as many people as you can. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think the first thing you want to engineer yourself for is to give yourself the most reflective time as possible, so that you're not forced to. Um, I think you need to move out of this survival mode and into like a, a sort of a view of abundance and. Mm -hmm. um, Create creativity, I guess, for lack of a better word. So, I mean, if you've managed to save up enough money to have six months, 12, six to 12 months to not have to make money, mm -hmm. then sure, stay in Australia and um, go, go to meetups, be explorative and playful for as long as you can. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, yeah, go there. Um, but I guess, thinking out loud now, so that's, that's, you know, if you're completely sick of your corporate job and you have to get out, mm -hmm. like, do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe you don't need to do that. So in which case, um, there's some great mentoring programs that are starting to pop up via okay. Stone and Chalk. Yep. Yeah. So that could be a really good avenue for, like what I imagine is very highly skilled people in corporate Australia. Um, they could come and volunteer or play around out of hours with some startups who are looking for their, their skill set. Mm -hmm. um, and that just gives them, then give them a taste of, of what's, what's going on and where they might um, be interested in, in getting involved. Um, Or I guess the third op so the third option might be like convince your boss to give you a plate like a little innovation area that mm. can be experimental but within your own organisation. Mm. Um, I'm starting to think more and more that 
there is actually a big appetite for those sorts of people inside of organizations, but um, it does require you to sort of be a bit gritty and hustle for that space as yeah. well. So, um, yeah. If, if I could just add something just to your third point. Uh, yeah. It's funny, the other day I was reading about this study where this professor from NYU spoke to a bunch of hospital cleaners. Yeah. So these were kind of people at the lowest on the totem pole who were cleaning bedpans and you know, and she wanted to know what would these people find good about their jobs or bad about their jobs and showed like one group hated their jobs. Yeah. But the other group found their jobs meaningful and then the way, the way they did, did that was they attached their job to a higher purpose in yeah. that they didn't see themselves as orderlies, they saw themselves as healers. Yeah. <coughs> and, um, and there was one example where she said this orderly would come in and she would change the flowers in the room. These are for comatose patients and change the yeah. paintings on the wall just in case, so just in case the patient woke up, had, you know, there's art around them. Yeah. Um, and sh the term she used for that was job crafting. In that yeah. You, it's within yourself to craft your job into as a way to deploy your your yeah. strengths. And, uh, well, it, I heard something similar recently, which was kind of calling bullshit on this whole pursuit of happiness thing. Um, <laughs> and it's it's kind of about finding contentment and being content with where you find yourself. Mm. Um, and so I think unless you're in that position of being content with where you find yourself, I think you're entering into, and you're thinking about being an entrepreneur, mm. um, I think you're not moving into entrepreneurship in the right frame of mind. Mm. I think, so I think if you're in that mid layer of, of the corporate sector, you should hope that you're, you're, you're in that second half of the, the subjects you just described mm. before you move out and do your own thing. Um, yep. Otherwise, to be honest, you'll just, it's a lot, it's a, it's a lot, it's a much bigger, it's a shittier existence mm. being a startup founder or working in startups than it is in the corporate sector. So mm. you, you really need to enter it with a pretty high degree of uh, resilience and mm. self-awareness. Yeah. 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 And for you, have there been say resources, whether books, people, whatever, the podcasts yeah. that stood out for you that really change your mindset or change your perspective on things? Or? I think it's seasonal, like, mm. you know, it depends yeah. <laughs> on what's going on in your mind. Um, mm. uh, I think not underestimating the importance of the, like, the people who are close to you, like mm. the podcast side, so yourself, um, Kyle Lofgren, Annie Roland Campbell, mm. um, my family. Um, so, yeah, like any book sort of, isn't isn't worth anything unless you've got that support structure around you. Sure, yeah. um, but then in terms of books, um, I think Gary Vaynerchuk is like a whole bunch of hot air, um, mm. but he just gives you the kick up the ass that you need when mm. you like need to find some motivation to mm. hustle. Um, I think Tim Ferriss is, is is quite you know. So these are all the classics that I'm mm. sure people have heard of. But mm. Tim Ferriss is good at. Um, I think reminding us of the importance of living a balanced life mm -hmm. and being healthy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then look, a lot of other ones I've been listening to have just been more about personal interest. Um, so then I think the most impactful things for my over the last 12 months at least was I went to the Tavistock Institute last year and did their two week residential 
group relations conference, mm. which is called Les the Leicester Conference. Who were they, sorry? The Tavistock Institute. Mm. So that was uh, created in 19, or just after World War II to breed more officers after the World War, mm -hmm. from what I understand. Um, and the Interstitia Foundation supported me to go and attend that for two weeks. Um, and I guess the learning was just around um, um, exposing, they call it the collective unconscious, but basically what that means is uh, we all operate with um, an unconscious sort of bias and so, you know, attraction mm -hmm. or desire and memory and we all bring these, these very primitive um, behaviours to the table and so um, I think a combination of mindfulness together with the, like, the knowledge and awareness of what that sort of primitive human behaviour is mm -hmm. so that uh, that's been probably the, the biggest lesson or biggest skill I've cultivated over the last 12 months and I have not, haven't finished cultivating it either sure. <laughs> but any reading into like Jung or um, mm -hmm. beyond psychology understanding the psychology of humans and groups mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, and I haven't, there's not one podcast, I guess, that I've come across yet. Sure. Um, last question. Um, so the name of this podcast is On Meaningful Work. Yeah. What does the term meaningful work mean to you? I don't think there is any meaningful... Well, mm. no, no, shit. Let me pause. Mm. That's going to mean a lot of different things to different people. Um, so for me... Yeah, for you, for, um, for you right now. Yeah. Well, I guess keeping consistent with what Tavistock and the group relations stuff. Um, eventually, your role as an entrepreneur is to like bring people together to, mm. to, to do something bigger than themselves. Mm. So the meaningful work definition then is like if I was just bringing people together to like manufacture shoes. And I just wanted to like do that as cheaply as possible, fuck mm. the workers, and then sell it for profit. Mm. That wouldn't be meaningful because there'd be a whole bunch of misery inside of the organization. Mm -hmm. So meaningful work is, I think, first and foremost about providing a space and environment by which individuals can genuinely do the best work of their lives and feel like they, they're like developing themselves and working on something important themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the meaningful bit, I guess. And then the work, the work is everything. Like mm. nothing in life is free. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, work is often thought about as mm. the product that you offer a client, but mm. the work is in, you know, investing the time to like, um, you know, resolve a conflict or to mm. like build a relationship that might be uncomfortable or, um, or the work is everywhere. Yeah. Or end one, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so yeah, meaningful work is. I think we've cl I've clearly positioned a vision around what type human wants to achieve, but I think over time that vision will be shaped by the members of type human, and mm. and so the focus then needs to be on I, like I really believe that individuals will are uh, inclined to do meaningful work, as in add value to society and each other. Mm. Um, and so what's gone wrong, perhaps over the last few decades, has been. Um, an orientation around like scarcity and individualism that sort mm -hmm. of led to this very like zero-sum competitive game mm -hmm. um, and I think if you build organizations like we have done that's mm -hmm. that's what will come that, that's what happens highly like very hierarchical very individualistic 
so it becomes yeah, zero sum climber mm -hmm. for the top. But I think if you, if we, um, I don't know what, what this looks like yet, but I guess if we focus more on creating spaces that gives individuals the chance to work on work that they think is meaningful and the space to learn and develop along the way, then it probably doesn't matter a whole lot what this, like the final vision or purpose of that group of people is. They'll, mm. they'll shape it and change it along the way, but it, it'll be coming from a good place rather than a, mm. like a self-maximizing sort of place, which is what's happened over the last few decades with our companies, I think. Mm. Sure. Does that make sense? I don't know, I no, I think it did, because I think, okay. I'm glad you brought in the work definition as mm -hmm. well. Um, we d because yeah, we don't want to get too caught up in, in the meaning and yeah. forget about the work, which can be uncomfortable, it can be tough. Yeah. And really it's about then building that resilience and building that capabilities of dealing with that. Yeah, what, ca what, what, what um, tactics have you come like? Um, I think for, for me as well, just like you, it's, it's the people. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I don't know who said this, but it's kind of like you're the average of the five people you spend most time with. Yeah. Um, I think over the last three, four years, I've been lucky enough to take that to heart. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think more than anything, that's really, that's really helped me. Yeah. Um, and and in, I suppose in terms of what I find meaningful, it's, um, I think the more I think about it, the more I think about it, it's really those formative experiences that you have as a young person or a kid. Mm -hmm. And then, because I think that's your initial view of the world mm -hmm. and your, your view of what life should be. And then it's, and that's what forms your values. And then I think something like skills then just sits on top of that and can be mm -hmm. easily replaced. But those things can't. Yeah. And I think it's really tapping into that and then building on that, whether it's abilities or skills or... Yeah. Are there any yeah. daily practices that you recommend? Um, I think f for me, and this is, you know, correlation versus causation argument, but yeah. I've been meditating 20 minutes a day for three years now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really grounded me as a person. I don't... And I've only been noticing this in the last few months that I'm not as reactive as I, as I used to yeah. be. I'm not, uh, I don't panic as much, you know? Yeah. Um, Is it the beard or the meditation? <laughs> <laughs> there you go, yeah. correlation versus causation. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that, and I think, I mean, I was always a good reader, but I think mm -hmm. last few years I've really taken reading seriously. Mm -hmm. And that's really opened my mind to lots of new ideas and people. Yeah. Um, I would say those, those two things. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Anyway, Nick, uh, thank you so much for Pleasure. doing this. Yeah. And not just for doing this podcast, but for really um, setting me on this journey. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, it's fair to say that DBN wouldn't exist without without your help and without you getting the first group of people together and oh, it's, you can only lead a horse to water you, you've <laughs> done the, the hard march yeah. so but follow that I'm really grateful so thank you Cheers. Cheers.